Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mojito. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a mango daiquiri and on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the Hi-Fi murders. These murders started as a robbery plot to steal electronics and ended with death and a harrowing story of survival. It also allegedly showcased the racial bias within the Utah criminal justice system. On April 22, 1974, Dale Pierre Shelby, Williams Andrews, and Keith Roberts went to the Hi-Fi store located in Ogden, Utah, with three other still unnamed men. The three named men were Air Force enlistees who were stationed on a nearby airbase. The Hi-Fi store sold home audio equipment and the robbers planned to steal what in today's money is around $30,000 worth of equipment. Before the robbery, it is alleged that Andrews stated that there would be no witnesses. Shelby and Andrews entered the shop with two other men while Roberts stayed in the van. In the store were 20-year-old Stanley Walker and 18-year-old Sherry Michelle Ansley. They were taken hostage and placed in the basement while the robbers began stealing from the store. Later, 16-year-old Courtney Nesbitt entered the store to thank Walker for allowing him to use the store's parking lot. The robbers forced Nesbitt to join Walker and Ansley. In the evening, the parents of Courtney Nesbitt and Stanley Walker got worried because their children hadn't arrived home yet. Orrin Walker, Stanley's dad, and Carol Nesbitt were taken hostage with their children in the Hi-Fi store basement. Andrews then went to the van to get a brown bag from it. When Andrews returned, he had a bottle of Drano, which is a heavy chemical drain cleaner. Shelby ordered Oren to give the Drano to the other hostages. When Oren refused, he was bound and gagged and placed face down. Shelby and Andrews then told the hostages to drink the Drano, claiming it was vodka laced with sleeping pills. This immediately caused blisters on the victim's lips, burns on the victim's tongues and throats, and peeled off the skin of their mouths. Shelby and Andrews tried to duct tape the victim's mouths, but were unable due to the oozing blisters caused by the Drano. Oren was the last to be forced to drink the Drano, and after seeing what it had done to the others, he let it dribble down his chin without swallowing it. This caused burns on his lip and chin. He then mimicked the convulsions that he had seen from the others. Shelby and Andrews had apparently seen Drano being used as a murder weapon in the movie Magnum Force. In the movie, a prostitute is forced to drink Drano and immediately dies. This is far from what the hi-fi victims experienced. The victims were in intense pain and screaming from the effects of the Drano. It would take the average person 12 hours to die from drinking Drano, and this time period is prolonged when factoring in that the victims were forced to drink from the same bottle. Upset that his victims were not dying fast enough, Shelby then shot Carol and Courtney Nesbitt in the back of the head. Carol died instantly, but Courtney survived. Shelby then shot at Oren, but the bullet missed. He then shot Stanley in the back of the head, killing him. He shot at Oren again, and this time grazed his head. Shelby then took Ansley in the corner of the basement and forced her to strip at gunpoint. He told Andrews to leave the basement and then proceeded to rape Ansley. 
He then allowed her to use the bathroom before returning her to the basement and fatally shooting her in the back of the head like he did to the others. Her last words were, quote, I'm too young to die, end quote. Ansley had planned to get married the following week. Shelby and Andrews noticed that Oren was still alive. Shelby tried to strangle him, and when that failed, he stuck a pen in his ear and stomped on his head. This punctured his eardrum and came out through his throat. Shelby and Andrews then left the building and departed in the vans. The bodies were discovered by Oren's wife and other son almost three hours after the murder. Oren's son broke down the basement door after he heard his screaming, while Mrs. Walker called the police. Stanley and Ansley were already dead while Carol was rushed to the hospital but was dead on arrival. Courtney Nesbitt survived but suffered from amnesia, thus was unable to recall all of the events. He was hospitalized for 266 days. He was able to graduate from high school but the severe brain damage forced him to leave college. He was not able to hold down a job and relied on social security assistance. He suffered from chronic pain for the remainder of his life and died at the age of 44. Oren Walker also survived and was able to share the details of this horrific crime. His testimony was critical in making sure he and the other victims received justice. The detectives who responded to the scene, believing the killers might be in the crowd, put on a show for the gathered airmen. Speaking dramatically, he waved each piece of the evidence in the air with tongues as he removed it from the dumpster. Later, he noted that most of the service personnel who gather around the dumpster stood still and watched in relative silence, with the exception of two men later identified as Pierre and Andrews, who paced around the crowd, speaking loudly and making frantic gestures with their hands. Based on the two men's reactions to the evidence being removed from the trash bin and the officer's implication of Andrews, Pierre, and Roberts were arrested. A search warrant was then issued for their barracks. Police found flyers for the hi-fi shop and a rental contract for a unit at a public storage facility. Following the issuance of another search warrant, stereo equipment taken from the hi-fi shop, later identified via serial numbers, were recovered from the storage unit. Also recovered was the half-empty bottle of Drana. When the news of the crime broke, an anonymous Air Force employee came forward and told the Ogden police that Andrews had told him, quote, one of these days I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop, and if anyone gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. End quote. Hours later, two teenage boys dumpster diving near Hill Air Force Base, where Shelby and Andrews were stationed, contacted the police after discovering the victims' wallets and purses, recognizing their pictures from their driver's licenses. Shelby, Andrews, and Roberts were then charged with aggravated assault and first-degree murder. The trials of all three men began on October 14, 1974. On November 16, 1974, Shelby and Andrews were found guilty on all charges, while Roberts was only convicted of robbery. Four days later, Andrew and Shelby were handed three death sentences. Roberts was given a five-year-to-life sentence and was paroled in 1987. After Andrews and Shelby were given the death penalty, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, and Amnesty International started work on getting their death sentences overturned. They alleged that there was racial bias during the trial since, according to Amnesty International, the only potential black juror was taken off the case. The juror was in fact a police officer who was familiar with the people involved in the case. Lawyers for the state pointed out that the jury makeup made perfect sense given Ogden's demographics. 
the city was overwhelmingly white at the time and having an all-white jury was not intentional. The Inter-American Commission petition alleged that a handwritten note that read, quote, hang the racial slur, end quote, had been found in the jury area during a recess and that the judge had refused a request for a mistrial and a right to question jurors concerning the note. All appeal attempts failed and Dale Pierre Shelby was executed on August 28, 1987. Andrews was later executed on July 30, 1992. Roberts died by suicide on August 8th, 1992. Jenny, what do you think of the Hi-Fi murders? It's a really sick and disturbing crime. And I think it's more sick and brutal in a way that we haven't really talked about. These people really had to suffer before they died for no real reason other than to get rid of witnesses. You can see how messy it was. And I think that the killers got desperate to not get caught and that's why it's just kind of like so all over the place and it's crazy I guess like how long it took if they really wanted to steal stuff why wouldn't they just go in there at night I don't understand why they would go in during the day and then have to face workers that were in there not that I'm you know like advocating for stealing or anything but you don't need to go in and kill people too I don't know if I agree with Andrews getting the same sentence as Pierre I know that he did go in with the intention to kill people and that he went along with it but it seemed like Pierre took the lead and was much more brutal so I think he should have had the harshest of the three sentences but what an awful awful crime and these poor people and then you know hearing how Courtney Nesbitt he didn't die but his life was essentially destroyed he couldn't really maintain school maintain a job I'm sure that caused a lot of emotional duress for him for the rest of his life what about you I definitely agree with you I would say that we've discussed a lot of different just disturbing crimes on the podcast, but this one is definitely near the top for me. When thinking about the fact that they wanted their victims to suffer the horrific pain that comes with essentially a chemical poisoning from the inside, that's one thing. And then the fact that that came from a movie just adds another level of just disgusting tactics from the perpetrators. And the fact that, like you said, they could have committed this robbery without harming anyone. I do think that there should have been some type of difference between the penalty for Shelby and for Andrews. I do understand why Andrews was given the same sentence because at the end of the day, it was pre-planned and he made no attempt to stop Shelby once it had started. And even when there were additional people that entered the store, which was Oren and Carol, they just continue with their brutality. I also think that it's really curious that Roberts ended up dying by suicide a little after Andrews was executed. One thing that came up in this case was racial bias, especially when it came to the jury. So do you think that Andrews and Shelby received a fair trial? I hesitate to really say definitively yes or no, because they 
should have been found guilty because they did commit this crime. There's no question. And they were found guilty. We said before, neither of us agree with the death penalty. So that aside, I do agree that they should have been in prison. Based off that note that was found, it does sound like there was some racial bias. And I think that the judge definitely should have at least taken the time to allow for questioning of the jurors. There's racial bias in everyone, whether we express it or realize it or not. So if this was an all-white jury in an all-white town, and Utah is a predominantly white state, I would say, till this day, you know, this took place in the 70s. There was definitely some element of racial bias in there, in my opinion. What do you think? I agree with you. I do think they received a fair trial in a sense that the outcome was correct. But of course, you always have that looming question of what subconscious thought went into the minds of the jury, especially when they're reading a note like that. Obviously, because there was no questioning of the jury, we don't know where that note came from. We don't know how many jurors may have or may have not saw it. But the fact that the judge made it seem like it was just irrelevant is odd to me. And it's not something that I think would happen today. Like we were stating before, Andrews and Shelby, along with their supporters, alleged that there were racial bias within their trial and thus they should not have been put to death for their horrific crimes. We have talked about the flaws in the criminal justice system before on the podcast, but we're going to focus on the racial discrimination within juries and the jury selection process and how that could affect the outcome in cases. The stakes are always high for juries as they are responsible for determining whether a defendant will spend time in prison and may also decide whether to put an individual to death. Following the American Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution had abolished slavery and guaranteed basic civil rights to African Americans. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 extended this to quote-unquote public accommodations and jury selection, including the establishment of criminal penalties for court officers who interfered. In 1883, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was overturned entirely by the Supreme Court in an eight-to-one decision. In 1896, the landmark Plessy v. Ferguson decision enshrined the unofficial civil code termed Jim Crow, ranging from separate but equal accommodations to voter disenfranchisement and jury exclusion. Blacks were thus denied access to public, political, and judicial spheres. Under the standard set forth by the United States Supreme Court in Fronder, the West Virginia and Batson v. Kentucky, the striking of a juror on account of race denies a defendant equal protection under the Constitution. We wanted to note that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not address racial biases in jury selection. According to Cornell University, quote, social science indicates that diverse juries deliberate longer, consider more facts, make fewer incorrect facts, correct themselves more and have the benefit of a broader pool of life experiences to draw upon so they can better understand the evidence. White jurors are more likely to self-monitor and thus be more careful in their decision-making in a diverse jury. Further, diverse juries are less likely to give death sentences, perhaps because minority presence on a jury allows the group to understand and appreciate the different life experiences that different racial identities have with the justice system. This leads the jury as 
a whole to perform their fact-finding tasks more effectively by helping eliminate or lessen individual biases or prejudices, end quote. The Bowers analyses concluded that the greater the proportion of whites to blacks on a capital jury, the more likely a black defendant was to be sentenced to death, especially when the victim was white. Research conducted in Florida found that all white juries convicted black defendants 81% of the time, whereas white defendants were convicted only 66% of the time. This shows that a lack of diversity contributes to African-American defendants getting convicted 1.25 times more than white defendants. Jenny, what steps do you think we should take to eliminate racial discrimination in juries? I think it's really important to have a diverse jury and eliminate racial discrimination within juries. I think that's really interesting that to hear the benefits of diverse juries. I mean, just hearing that alone, wouldn't the criminal justice system want to make sure people are considering all of the facts and correcting themselves and listening to people's experiences to help them make a decision? I don't know if people are really aware of that, but I think spreading the benefits of it would probably help to an extent. I'm not sure if there's like some type of ratio that could be put in place. We need X amount of white jurors, X amount of like non-white jurors that could help. I also think we've seen this before in different cases, moving trials to different towns or counties, possibly because of like racial makeup or because people are just too familiar in this area, have too many connections and can't be unbiased. I think that can help as well. I know it might be a little more costly, but I mean, when we're playing with literal life and death in some situations, I don't think cost should be an issue. What about you? I agree. I think that people tend to overlook the benefits of diversity and they tend to tie it with negative things like affirmative action and how they try to use the term of like reverse racism and forced desegregation when it comes to looking at increasing the diversity in juries. I think that when you look at the benefits of it and you look at the fact that the population demographics are all always changing. And so how in modern times we would get to still have all white juries is surprising to me. I definitely think there's a lot of benefit to moving a trial away from where the crime was committed. Because like you said, even if someone says, oh, I didn't hear about this or, oh, I can be unbiased. I don't think that's really true when we look at just human nature and how information is spread. If something is happening, especially in a small town, everyone hears about it. It's on social media. You're talking about it at the neighborhood picnic, at church, or other social gatherings. It's going to be a topic of conversation. And so to eliminate racial discrimination in juries, you have to make sure that the pool of jurors that you're picking from can actually be unbiased. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the hi-fi murders. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the murder of Vincent Chin. As always, stay safe.